All right, now on April 9th, 1945, a man was hanged in the Flossenburg concentration camp. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He'd been arrested a couple years prior on April 5th, um, 1943, for his role in the Valkyrie plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And for two years, he goes from concentration camp to concentration camp, continuing his ministry that he'd carried out on the outside, ministry of preaching and teaching. He had been a professor of theology. And he had written some pretty important books, books that even today are worth reading. One of them in German is called Discipleship. In English, we know it as The Cost of Discipleship. And though he'd written it in 1937, it came to define his life in prison. He says, suffering is the key badge of discipleship. And he certainly lived it out. The Allies would liberate the Flossenburg camp two weeks after Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged. And kind of painful to think about. I've been thinking about him this week because of this passage, John the Baptist being beheaded. And it's a tough passage to preach. Some as preachers, you know, some passages are easy. They're like softballs, and you can crush them out of the park. Others of them you wrestle with and pull your hair out over. And that's kind of this one. Now, my perspective is far different than John's or Dietrich Bonhoeffer's. I live in a pretty comfortable place, a nation that has freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, We can get together and worship God without fear of outside oppression or influence. So is suffering really the badge of discipleship? If you look back through the pages of church history or you start to analyze the scriptures, you certainly see that our experiences are pretty rare. In most times and in most places, those who have tried to follow Christ consistently and faithfully have suffered for it. So this morning, I want to kind of just walk through this passage on John. Our approach will be a little bit different than normal. If you're new here, we normally just go verse by verse and and see what each passage says. But today, we're going to kind of draw out some principles from it. But this is the main thing I want you to see. And if you don't see anything else, just get this. That faithful followers of Christ will face conflict in the world with the powers and the powerful. Wherever you go, whatever you do, if you want to be faithful in following Christ, you will have conflict with the powers and the powerful in the world. And as we walk through this story, I want you to see four reasons why that is. Four reasons I think that are are fairly obvious and are fairly relevant to us today. And maybe, like me, you'll be provoked, convicted, and maybe even sense the need to renew your commitment to following Christ, whatever the cost. So this passage sort of stands out from what we've been doing. Over the past 10 weeks, we've been working through Mark's gospel, starting in chapter 3 up to chapter 6, really thinking about who Jesus is as teacher. He called his disciples, and he was preparing them for this mission of preaching and healing. And so along the way, he taught them things, and they observed his way of life and the interactions he had with people, so that when it was time for him to send them out, they'd be taught. They'd have been fully prepared for the task. Of course, last week, that's what we saw. We saw Jesus send out the twelve on mission. And Mark tells us that as they went, they preached repentance, calling people to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they had authority to cast out demons, and they were laying hands on people and anointing them with oil, and they were being healed. And as they went, Jesus' name and fame spread. 
I mean, up to that point, he had been one man on one mission. And the people who heard him flocked to him. But he could only ever be in one place at one time. But as he sent out these six pairs of disciples, they multiplied that ministry and spread his name. Then surprisingly, the story shifts gears. And we come face to face with John. Of all the passages in Mark's gospel, all the stories he tells, only two of them focus on someone other than Jesus. And both of them focus on John. Back in Mark chapter 1, Mark tells us that John appeared in the wilderness by the Jordan River preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark says that all of Jerusalem and Judea came to him and were confessing their sins and being baptized. Even Jesus came and entered the waters of the Jordan. And when he came out, the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove and compelled him into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. But then in Mark 1.14, he tells us that John was arrested and then Jesus appeared on the scene. The focus then shifts to Jesus and all the wonderful things he did and the things he taught and the way he called his disciples and loved on people. And then we get to this second passage, which is the conclusion to the opening line of Mark 1.14. John was arrested. Well, what happened to him? What, what was his fate in prison? Here Mark tells us, sandwiched between the disciples' sending and the disciples' return is the story of John. See, as Jesus' disciples went spreading his name and fame, people everywhere started to talk about him, trying to figure out who he was, trying to read between the lines and interpret the significance of his life and teaching and ministry. They come up with three options. First, they say he's Elijah. Now, I went back this week and looked at Elijah in the book of Kings to re-familiarize myself with his story. If you don't know him, he's this great Old Testament prophet who powerfully spoke on behalf of God, did amazing things, called down fire from heaven that didn't just swallow up an offering on the altar. It swallowed up everything. It just disintegrated it like a fire blast from heaven. And all the prophets of Baal were put to death. He spoke against the wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel on the run from her because she's trying to kill him. And then at the end of his amazing life, God sends a chariot of fire from heaven to pick him up and take him away. Now, the people of the Old Testament, the people of Jesus' day, believed that one day Elijah would return. Just like he went to heaven, he'd come back again. And this time, he'd speak on God's behalf and announce the coming of God's judgment day. Malachi 4 talks about this. The Lord promises, he says, Before the awful and awesome day of the Lord, I'll send my messenger Elijah before me. And so when people heard Jesus teaching about the coming of God's kingdom and the need to repent because judgment was on the horizon, they said, we know who this is. This is Elijah, as he was promised in the prophet Malachi. Others, though, didn't put the same level of significance on him. They were willing to admit he was a prophet, just like all the other ones. Just a, another man sent from God to speak on God's behalf like all the ones who had come before. And they listened to him, and they obeyed his word. There wasn't much else than that. But then there was a third group saying that John, he was John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead, and that's why he was able to perform all these miracles. That's a pretty interesting thought. Now, we're not likely to attribute anyone's great success to resurrection today. 
And it was pretty rare back then. But they saw in Jesus and John some similarities. We know Jesus and John are cousins. They're about the same age. They preached in the same general vicinity. Their mode of preaching was the same. They were traveling, itinerant preachers. Crowds flocked to both of them. Their message was even the same. John preached a message of repentance, and Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of God's at hand. Believe the gospel. So they saw some similarities. They saw some continuities between who John was and who Jesus was. The only explanation was these are the same guy. And that's the interpretation that Herod lands on. I love the way Mark records it. He says, my Bible has an exclamation point, which I think is cool. John, whom I have beheaded, has arisen. There's some desperation in that. This isn't the careful conclusion drawn by studying all the facts of Jesus, of listening to his message and then realizing, okay, this is John. Now, I think this is the paranoid fear of a man haunted by his past and afraid of losing his power. John, whom I beheaded, has arisen. Josephus, the Roman Jewish historian, tells us that Herod arrested John because he saw the logical conclusion of John's ministry. That if John was proclaiming a coming kingdom, that God was about to show back up on the scene. And if people were flocking to him, bucking off the normal constraints of respectable society for a man wearing a camel skin shirt and eating locusts and wild honey, there might be some political ramifications to it. That eventually, a man so popular could lead an uprising and revolt. And so Herod threw him into prison. And now Jesus comes on the scene doing the exact same thing. Like one commentator said, it's like Herod thinks that John's come back from the dead to haunt him. He thought he'd snuffed the problem out, and here he is all over again. I thought I'd dealt with this. Except this time, Jesus is preaching a similar message, but authenticating it with miraculous signs, casting out demons, healing the sick. You know, as you think about this conflict between John and Herod, it raises an interesting point. Herod's basic issue with John and the issue the powers and the powerful have with you and me today is they see, rightly, they see Jesus as a threat to their authority. Though Herod was wrong about Jesus' identity, he wasn't actually John the Baptist resurrected. He was right about the implications of Jesus' life and ministry. If Jesus was who he claimed to be, and if Jesus was capable of doing everything that people saw him do, and if just by the words of his mouth he could heal people, raise up the dead, then there are political ramifications for all involved. I mean, if people were being healed in his name, if demons were being cast out in his name, if people were looking for a coming kingdom that was coming in his name, Herod's kingdom was going to come to an end. His days as king were numbered. And eventually Luke tells us in Luke 23, 8, that when Jesus is brought to the Roman governor of Jerusalem, Pilate, that he's sent over to Herod. And it's the first time Herod gets to meet him. And Luke tells us that he had really wanted to meet Jesus because he'd heard about all the wonderful things he did and the things he taught, and he wanted to see Jesus do a miracle. And when Jesus refused, Herod and his men laughed at him, dressed him up in a royal robe, mocked him, and sent him back to Pilate. 
Now, you think about this. What, what kind of authority does Jesus possess that the local king, the local governor, the tetrarch, can make a mockery and laughingstock of him? I mean, surely Herod must have felt good that, hey, people thought this Jesus was the king of the Jews, but in fact, look at him. He's a sorry excuse for a Messiah, and he's headed for the cross. But Herod's paranoia is normal. It's a pattern we see throughout Scripture, that the powers that be in the world recognize Jesus as a threat to their authority. Think about the interactions he's already had. Pharisees, the respected religious elite of Jesus' day, hear the things that Jesus says and see the things he's doing, and they realize that, hey, something different there's something different about this guy, and they pretty quickly decide that they've got to destroy him, whatever means necessary. They end up conspiring, Mark tells us, with the Herodians, people who are part of Herod's entourage and who believe that Herod was the rightful king of Galilee. Then you get the scribes who come up from Jerusalem with their clipboards trying to investigate all that's going on in Capernaum. That Jesus represents for them a, a separate center of authority when Everyone always thought of the scribes in Jerusalem as the authorities. Here's another man, an unauthorized preacher and miracle worker, leading people astray. Eventually you get to Pilate, who recognizes that there's no guilt in Jesus, but he washes his hands of the whole situation because he understands that if he doesn't crucify him, he'll have a revolt on his hands. I mean, they're just like the people that Mike read about in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, the Gentiles plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed? They're chafing under the bounds that God's placed on them, under the authority that's rightfully his. See, Daniel saw this in a vision in Daniel chapter 7. If you want to turn there, you can. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. You may just want to make a note of it and look at it later and listen very carefully. I say that with my kids when I'm reading them books, trying to imply that something they're about to hear is important. There's probably nothing more important in all of Scripture than this. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, all the nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. We used to sing this song, there's something about that name. There's a line in that I was singing about this morning, kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. That's the truth, man. Herod's kingdom not there today. In fact, Herod was banished from his kingdom because he wanted the title king. Emperor Octavius sent him to exile in Gaul. Right? Every king who's ever lived, every kingdom that's ever been established comes to an end, but not Jesus' kingdom. I mean, eventually, every king and every kingdom will be lined up on a great field. Jesus will appear from heaven on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, and he'll slay them all, and he'll let their bodies rot in the open sun and let the birds of the air feast on their flesh. That's what the Bible says. And so Herod was right. If Jesus is who he says he is, I'm in trouble. But since Jesus sits secure on his throne, 
free from any of the political machinations of the world, the powers and the powerful tend to take out their anger on us. I mean, look anywhere in the world today where there are oppressive and tyrannical governments, and you're bound to see suffering followers of Jesus. Everywhere on the face of the earth where there are oppressive and tyrannical governments, you're bound to find suffering followers of Jesus. Take China, for example, where the communist officials will bust into unauthorized church gatherings and non-sanctioned state churches. Consider Iran and Saudi Arabia, where being a Christian is a death sentence. Or in Africa, do you know 3,000 Christians were killed last year in Nigeria? And then there's the West. The governments are more advanced and humane and choose to just drag it out through legal processes, draining Christians and churches' bank accounts through legal fees or social media companies and corporations, digital mobs. Thankfully, we don't have to go through what the 27 North Korean Christians did when the local Communist Party was building a new roadway they discovered a group of Christians living in a tunnel underground. And so they brought them all out to the surface and lined them all up and said, here's your opportunity. Deny Christ. And when they wouldn't, they laid them side by side on the road and ran them over with steamrollers. Why? What was the, I mean, what do you tell people? Hey, we squashed these people with a steamroller for what? The official charge was believing in superstitions. But the reality was they knew what the hope of the gospel could do. They knew how dangerous a believing community is. They knew what a group of Christians totally committed that their God is secure in the heavens, unafraid of what local government can do. And they knew the long-term implications. Jesus was a threat to their authority. And so you have conflict with those who faithfully follow Christ. But it's not just that. I think it's also that we're committed to Jesus' truth. We see this back here in verse 17 and 18. Mark tells us, Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. Because he'd married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, this is a pretty interesting wrinkle in the story. One commentator said, The Herodian family tree is as twisted as the trunk of an olive tree. I've never seen an olive tree, but I'm going to take his word for it. This thing must have been messed up. I mean, the the Herod in our story's name is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great, who uh, rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem and um, infamously killed all the infant babies in Bethlehem when the Magi told him that the king of the Jews had been born there. And he had four sons, and on Herod the Great's death, his kingdom was divided among them into four sections. And so each section was called a tetrarchy. And so Herod Antipas was the tetrarch of the region of Galilee and Perea, 
Galilee, the main focus of Jesus' ministry. Perea, the main focus of John's ministry. So he's always on the lookout for people around him causing problems. But the problem was really not political, but personal. Um, Herod Antipas had married Herodias, who had been married to his half-brother, Herod Philip, and was actually the, ha- the daughter of his half-brother, Aristobulus IV. So get this. Herodias wasn't just his, daughter, his brother's wife. She was his niece. But he married her. To do so, he had to go through the process. He sent his first wife back to her dad, who was the king in the east. He reigned out of the city of Petra, which today has the beautiful canyon uh, palace carved into rock. So he sent his first wife back to her dad, and Herodias had divorced her husband Philip and had married Herod Antipas. It was a scandal. I mean, it was a, a scandal like it had been on the National Enquirer's front page. The people of Galilee, the Jewish people that Herod reigned over were, were scandalized by it. And in fact, when Herod Antipas' first wife's dad received his daughter back, he got all his men together and he went and waged war on Herod Antipas and he lost the battle and the people interpreted it as God's judgment on his sin of neglecting his first wife. Okay, so everybody's talking about how wicked Herod was, but only one man had the courage to say out loud what everybody was thinking. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, y'all are on the edge of your seats, so go with me, okay? Think about that. Now, John's a prophet, doing what prophets do. Speak confidently and boldly God's truth to power. But think about how it must have hit Herod. And here he is, the king. Not the actual king, the tetrarch, but he likes to think of himself as a king. And the king makes the rules. The king is the law. So who are you talking about? Not lawful. I'm the law. I can do what I want. This is my kingdom. But not to John. See, John believed in God's authority that superseded all human authority. And he believed in God's truth, even when the powerful disobeyed and ignored it. Herodias had divorced her husband, just as Herod had divorced his wife. They weren't a loving couple running off together to live some happy life. They were full-blown adulterers living in open sin. And if John's message was repent... That meant everybody was going to have to repent. Not just the little people, but even the powerful people. That was what John was guilty of. Being committed to God's truth, even when it cost him. It reminds me of that boy in the Hans Christian Andersen story, The Emperor's New Clothes. We always talk about the emperor's got no clothes, but have you ever read that story, how amazing it is? It basically goes like this. There's an emperor who lives in a magnificent palace and doesn't deny himself any sort of luxury. One day, two traveling merchants come to town and tell the king that they can make the most magnificent fabric in all the world, a fabric so luxurious that foolish and unintelligent people can't even see it. So the king, not one to deny himself any luxury, agrees to let them make him this fabric, even gives them a room in his palace where they can set up their looms and get to work. One day he goes down to check on their progress and opens the door 
and sees them hard at work on looms that are empty, no string and no fabric. But not wanting to be thought foolish or unintelligent, he applauds their good work. Hey, great job, guys. Keep it up. I'm really looking forward to wearing that. Goes back to court, sends some of his officials down there. Hey, go check out that fabric for me. And they, too, go in and open the door. What do they see? But empty looms, not wanting to seem foolish or unintelligent. They say, wow, the king is going to love this. Keep up the good work. And eventually, the day comes when they present to him the magnificent clothes they've made him, luxurious, unlike anything else on the face of the earth. And they tell him, king, all that's left for you to do is to parade in front of your people. And so the king strips to his underwear. And they go through this, you know, the mime of loading him up with his new clothes. And out he walks into the streets. And all the people along the road are all thinking, this man has lost his mind. <laughs> Walking down the street naked. But only one boy has the courage to say, the emperor's got no clothes. That's John. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He's the boy with the audacity to say, what everybody knows, what Herod himself knows, but what no one has the courage to say. John's like the early Christians, who instead of taking advantage of all that Roman law would have allowed them to do, treated their wives and children with respect. That's offensive to the Romans. They are upending society. Don't you know, dad's supposed to rule the house with an iron fist? You start going soft on your wife, what's my wife going to think? Think about the abolitionists, Dr. Martin Luther King, who in the law of the land said certain people were more valuable or important than others because of the color of their skin, had the audacity to say, no, God loves all people equally. What about the people who say, an unborn baby is not a sack of cells. It's a human being made in the image and likeness of God with a bright future in store for them. What about the people who say, whatever the corporations want to do, whatever government agency comes out with guidance, Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Education, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and there's a difference between boys and girls. So go to Washington, stand on the street corner and announce your message. Go to Austin and speak the truth and see if conflict comes or not. Some of y'all are mad at me. I'm the messenger. Your quarrel's with God. And so that's why God's people face conflict in the world, because we're committed to God's truth. Just because the powerful say it loudly and confidently doesn't make it so. God's truth is God's truth. But it's not just a commitment to truth that leads to conflict, because talk is cheap. All right? It's also our consistent pursuit of Jesus' way of life. Look at verse 19. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and couldn't do it. For Herod was afraid of John because he knew that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Like, if Herod was provoked by the truth that John preached, 
the way of life had to have convicted him. I mean, you hold two men up against each other, and you can't find more polar opposites. On the one side, you got a holy and righteous man. On the other, you got a depraved man who knows no taboos. Married his living brother's wife and, by the way, his niece. And the whole story turns on his niece's daughter's sensual dance that leads to the beheading of John the Baptist. I mean, this man was rotten to the core, depraved. But when he saw John, he saw something different. He saw a holy and righteous man. I mean, think about it. John had shunned his life as a priest. See, both his mom and his dad were from the priestly household. He could have had a nice career working in the temple and retired at an early age and lived out his days doing what his family had always done. But instead, he'd gone into the wilderness to live an ascetic lifestyle, pursuing God's righteousness and proclaiming repentance. He was holy. Think about that word, holy. Even Jesus said about John, among those born of women, there's not a risen one greater than John the Baptist. When you, you, you think of a person to put on a pedestal, John is it. He is holy and righteous. And it wasn't just John's message that provoked Herod. It was the life that backed it up. It wasn't a lot of hot air hamming it up on the streets. He lived, ate, and breathed God's truth. It was obvious to everybody who saw him. And this kind of holy, consecrated, and set-apart life defines the people of God. It's what makes us the people of God, to be set apart for God. And if you set yourself to faithfully pursue that way of life, following Jesus in the way he lived, being conformed into his likeness so that you think, act, and speak like he did, you will face conflict with others. When you think about what Peter says, Peter saw Jesus, he preached Jesus, he lived for Jesus. Think about what he says in 1 Peter 2. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And get this. Beloved, I urge you as strangers and aliens to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. It's not just about believing the right things. You've got to live the right way. He says over in chapter 4, Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. The time's already passed for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. 
You ever set out to live faithfully for Jesus? You ever said, hey, I'm done with that way of living? I'm not going to do that anymore. It always goes great, right? All your family comes around you, and they're like, hey, way to go. We're with you. No. You want to live consistently in Jesus' way of life? Expect to feel everything hell can send against you. Your family's going to turn against you. Your friends are going to turn against you. And the government sure is going to turn against you. That's why Jesus has to tell his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the way it goes. And part of the problem for us is that so many of us are comfortable in our sin. There's no discernible difference between the average Christian and the average non-Christian. But hear me. We may believe differently than the world, but the question is, do we live differently, or do we live exactly the same? John's life was a testimony to the message he preached. There are plenty of Christians saying the right things and living the wrong way. Jesus calls them hypocrites. He says, there'll be many in the last day who say to me, Lord, Lord, Do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? And he'll say to them, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. This is the danger, and John puts it in front of us in crystal clear terms. Do we live consistently as followers of Christ? It's not just the consistency of our pursuit of Jesus' way of life. It's also this deeper theological principle. That in his wisdom and sovereignty, we face conflict because God uses suffering to accomplish his purpose. God uses suffering to accomplish his purpose. And I think the whole story of John the Baptist is heartbreaking. You think, how could a righteous man die like that? And you realize, well, that's kind of the way it goes for righteous people. I mean, it highlights the, the, and foreshadows the way of life that all God's people face. The suffering that meets us all, maybe not in beheadings, thank God. Like you're not likely to get your head chopped off. But you'll know conflict. It seems that in his wisdom and sovereignty, this is the reason we face it. Because God uses our suffering to accomplish his purpose. Because the deal is, a suffering servant's a powerful testimony to a watching world of our saving God. A suffering servant's a powerful testimony to the watching world of our saving God. It's just the way it is. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not ourselves. For we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in our body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. See, here's the thing. Paul suffered, I mean, more than anybody should have to. Beaten multiple times and left for dead. They threw rocks at him until they thought he'd die. Can you imagine that? get shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, and finally, after all that, 
gets his head taken off. And he saw God at work in him. We carry around this treasure, the life-changing message of the gospel. That Jesus, God's son, came and lived a sinless life and died on the cross in the place of sinners was resurrected three days later and offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who will trust in him. We carry this message around with us in broken vessels so that everybody will know that the good things that happen are not from us, but from God. That's why God uses suffering servants to testify to his goodness and grace. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. He knew where his treasure was. He knew who his treasure was. And despite the suffering, he knew God was at work. I mean, has there ever been a more vivid example of this than Jesus himself? I mean, his whole death was foreshadowed by John. Even the the thought of resurrection and the disciples coming and taking his body, all this foreshadows what Mark's going to tell us happened to him at the end of the story. And there are ways to think about it. You could say, well, all the, the ruling authorities saw him as a threat. And so empire does what empire is going to do, and it killed the revolutionary. You could think of it that way. You could think of it, okay, the, the temple priests saw their power slipping through their fingers, and so they had to do away with Jesus. It's better for one man to die for the nation than all of us to die together. And so they sacrificed him as a scapegoat. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that when he was on the cross, people thought he was getting what he deserved. But in fact, he was suffering on behalf of others. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the final act of submission to God. And in that moment, when all of hell all of local government and the empire Rome, when they thought they had won, God was in his wisdom working his sovereign purpose. So that Paul can say in Philippians 2 that after Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice on the cross, God exalted him and raised him up to the seat of all authority, gave him a name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Through Jesus' suffering, God exalted him, and he made a way for you and me to be in God's presence, to be a part of his family, to be in his kingdom, to have hope for the future. This is all through the suffering of Christ. And if Christ suffered that way, shouldn't we expect, as his disciples, to suffer too? No servants above his master or disciple above his teacher. Jesus' own words. And so, church, if you want to live as a faithful follower of Christ, you'll face conflict with the powers and the powerful in the world. They're smart enough to know that if Jesus is who he says he is, their days are numbered. They listen well enough to know that you're committed to a different kind of truth than they are. They got eyes to see that your way of life is convicting. Because every day they have to see you living faithfully and obediently, mirroring back to them what they know they ought to do. And God's going to use it to further his purpose. I think Bonhoeffer was right. Suffering is the badge of discipleship. Jesus says, if anybody will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, 
and follow me. I wonder if you consider yourself to be a follower of Christ. You know he's called you to take up your cross and follow him, but are you? Are you? Do you know the suffering that we're talking about this morning? Have you faced ridicule from family and friends? Think about co-workers in the break room who give you that extra seat buffer at the table. They know if they give you a chance, you're going to talk about Jesus. Think about your friends at school who think it's hilarious that you're trying to leave behind the things you used to do and pursue Christ. But it's right. You're on the right track. He's called you to follow him wherever he leads and whatever it costs. But I wonder if you're maybe aware of times when you've abandoned your responsibility for the sake of temporary comfort or not to make things awkward. You just kind of kept quiet. Maybe you need to pray a prayer like this. Jesus, give me courage and boldness to speak for you, to stand for you, to live for you. Maybe you're not a Christian. Joshua alluded to that earlier at the beginning of our service. Why, Why would you willingly sign up for something that promises suffering? That seems counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense. But here's the thing. There's this unshakable sense deep in my soul that every good thing requires some work, some effort, some hardship. So all my life, I've tried to present myself to God as somebody worthy to be saved. And truthfully, I'm more like Herod than I am like John. I see holy and righteous people, and I'm provoked. Man, I wish I was more like that. I see people willing to say courageous things, and I shake in my shoes when I think about some of the things that are in my sermon notes. And then you hear this wonderful message. That eternal life is freely given to all who trust in Christ. You don't have to work hard. You don't have to prove yourself. You just open up your hands and receive from God a wonderful gift. It's unlike anything else. You don't have to work for it. It's a free gift, freely received. If somebody's willing to do that for me, I'm willing to do whatever they ask. Go wherever they go, no matter the cost. And I think in your heart of hearts, you know that's true too. You've heard about Jesus today. You've seen his disciples. You've seen what it means to follow him. And now is the day you commit. Maybe you need to pray the prayer. Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. I believe you're more than a prophet. I know you're God's son. I believe you'll save me, forgive me. Give me courage to live for you. Today's the day to do that. And maybe as your first act of obedience, as your first step out in faith for him, you need to let somebody know the commitment you're making in your heart right now. And after service, I'd love to talk to you, figure out how I can help you follow Christ as a faithful follower. Will you pray with me?